0: Chapter Four, Part Three of the Many-Sided Franklin by Paul Lester Ford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Chapter Four, Religion, Part Three a travelling companion in franklin's journey to canada in seventeen seventy six was the rev john carroll of maryland the continental congress having requested him to go with their commissioners in the hope that as a roman catholic priest he would exercise particular influence with the french canadians No such result was attained, but he and Franklin formed a warm friendship, which was made the more lasting by Carroll's attention when the exposure and fatigue of the trip broke down Franklin's health. The service in time was rewarded, for when Franklin was applied to by the papal nuncio at Paris to name the man best fitted to be the first Roman Catholic bishop in America, he named Carroll, who received the appointment. With this same nuncio was partly transacted an affair, which well illustrates not merely how little value Franklin placed upon forms and creeds, but how little he appreciated the value set upon them by others. Two young American clergymen wrote to him in 1784 that the Archbishop of Canterbury had refused to ordain them ministers of the Episcopal Church unless they would first take the oath of allegiance to Great Britain and besought his assistance. In his endeavor to help them, Franklin asked the nuncio if he would not ordain them, but was told, quote, the thing is impossible unless the gentlemen become Catholics, end quote. Franklin therefore advised them first that they become Presbyterians, and next, if that did not suit them, that they ordain themselves. And as usual, he ends his advice with an argument and a story to illustrate the absurdity of Americans looking to Great Britain for ordination. if the british islands were sunk in the sea and the surface of this globe has suffered greater changes you would probably take some such method as this and if they persist in denying your ordination it is the same thing a hundred years hence when people are more enlightened it will be wondered at that men in america qualified by their learning and piety to pray for and instruct their neighbors should not be permitted to do it till they had made a voyage of six thousand miles out and home to ask leave of a cross old gentleman at canterbury who seems by your account to have as little regard for the souls of the people of maryland as king william's attorney general seymour had for those of virginia the rev commissary blair who projected the college of that province and was in england to solicit benefactions and a charter relates that the queen in the king's absence having ordered seymour to draw up the charter which was to be given with two thousand pounds in money he opposed the grant saying that the nation was engaged in an expensive war that the money was wanted for better purposes and he did not see the least occasion for a college in virginia Blair represented to him that its intention was to educate and qualify young men to be ministers of the gospel, much wanted there, and begged Mr. Attorney would consider that the people of Virginia had souls to be saved, as well as the people of England. Souls, said he, damn your souls, make tobacco. End quote a friendship begun in london was that with thomas paine and when the yet unknown man emigrated to america he carried letters of recommendation from franklin to various philadelphians Their relations upon Franklin's return to America in 1775 were intimate enough to have the public believe for a time that common sense was really from Franklin's pen and only pretendedly written by Payne. and though the crude style of the pamphlet should have prevented the rumor from gaining currency, Franklin was in a manner concerned, for he had read over the manuscript and had suggested changes to it. Ten years later, Paine also submitted to him the first draft of the Age of Reason, and the advice Franklin gave him is worthy of full quotation. I have read your manuscript with some attention. By the argument it contains against a particular providence, though you allow a general providence, you strike at the foundations of all religion. For without the belief of a providence that takes cognizance of guards and guides and may favor particular persons there is no motive to worship a deity to fear his displeasure or to pray for his protection i will not enter into any discussion of your principles though you may seem to desire it At present I shall only give you my opinion that, though your reasons are subtle and may prevail with some readers, you will not succeed so as to change the general sentiments of mankind on that subject, and the consequence of printing this piece will be a great deal of odium drawn upon yourself, mischief to you, and no benefit to others. He that spits against the wind spits in his own face. But were you to succeed, do you imagine any good would be done by it? you yourself may find it easy to live a virtuous life without the assistance afforded by religion you having a clear perception of the advantage of virtue and the disadvantages of vice and possessing a strength of resolution sufficient to enable you to resist common temptations. But think how great a portion of mankind consists of weak and ignorant men and women, and of inexperienced, inconsiderate youth of both sexes, who have need of the motives of religion to restrain them from vice, to support their virtue, and retain them in the practice of it till it becomes habitual, which is the great point for its security and perhaps you are indebted to her originally that is to your religious education for the habits of virtue upon which you now justly value yourself you might easily display your excellent talents of reasoning upon a less hazardous subject and thereby obtain a rank with our most distinguished authors for among us it is not necessary as among the hottentots that a youth to be raised in the company of men should prove his manhood by beating his mother I would advise you, therefore, not to attempt unchaining the tiger, but to burn this piece before it is seen by any other person, whereby you will save yourself a great deal of mortification by the enemies it may raise against you, and perhaps a great deal of regret and repentance. If men are so wicked with religion, what would they be if without it? End quote. Certainly, Payne later had good reasons to appreciate the shrewdness and good sense of this advice, for, as poor Richard had long before declared, "...tucking against religion is unchaining the tiger, the beast let loose may worry his deliverer." Franklin, however, drew a great distinction between a man who attacked the religion of others and a man who merely declared his own honest convictions. remember me affectionately to good dr price and the honest heretic dr priestley he once requested of a correspondent adding i do not call him honest by way of distinction for i think all the heretics i have known have been virtuous men they have the virtue of fortitude, or they would not venture to own their heresy, and they cannot afford to be deficient in any of the other virtues, as that would give advantage to their enemies, and they have not, like orthodox sinners, such a number of friends to excuse or justify them. Do not, however, mistake me. It is not to my good friend's heresy that I impute his honesty. On the contrary, it is his honesty that has brought upon him the character of heretic." End quote. Franklin's belief in the value of religion was illustrated in the Federal Convention of 1787. At a certain stage of the discussion, the differences of opinion which had developed were apparently irreconcilable and threatened to put an end to the gathering. He thereupon made his famous motion for prayers, and when it was voted down, he endorsed on the manuscript, in either surprise or indignation, quote, the Convention, except three or four persons, thought prayers unnecessary. End quote. As already mentioned, Franklin, as early as 1728, had composed his own prayer book, and in his scheme of employment for the twenty-four hours of a natural day, he began his day, quote, rise, wash, and address powerful goodness. End quote. Poor Richard, too, told his readers they ought to work as if you were to live a hundred years, pray as if you were to die tomorrow. Less seriously, Franklin wrote, apropos of a New England clergyman's prayer against a French garrison, quote, "Father Moody's prayers look tolerably modest. You have a fast and prayer day for that purpose, in which I compute 500,000 petitions were offered up to the same effect in New England, which added to the petitions of every family, morning and evening, multiplied by the number of days since January 25th, makes 45 millions of prayers, which, set against the prayers of a few priests in a garrison to the Virgin Mary, give a vast balance in your favor, end quote. Franklin was able to joke thus because he himself placed works far above worship, and he made poor Richard remark, quote, "Serving God is doing good to man, but praying is thought an easier serving, and therefore most generally chosen." End quote. Yet he did not think that the most altruistic life entitled one to immortality. For my own part," he wrote, when i am employed in serving others i do not look upon myself as conferring favors but as paying debts in my travels and since my settlement i have received much kindness from men to whom i shall never have any opportunity of making the least direct return and numberless mercies from god which is infinitely above being benefited by our services These kindnesses from men I can therefore only return on their fellow men, and I can only show my gratitude for those mercies from God by a readiness to help his other children and my brethren. For I do not think that thanks and compliments, though repeated weekly, can discharge our real obligations to each other, and much less those to our Creator you will see in this my motion of good works that i am far from expecting as you suppose that i shall ever merit heaven by them by heaven we understand a state of happiness infinite in degree and eternal in duration i can do nothing to deserve such reward he that for giving a draught of water to a thirsty person should expect to be paid with a good plantation would be modest in his demands compared to those who think they deserve heaven for the little good they do on earth even the mixed imperfect pleasures we enjoy in this world are rather from god's goodness than our merit how much more such happiness in heaven for my own part i have not the vanity to think i deserve it the folly to expect it nor the ambition to desire it But content myself in submitting to the will and disposal of that God who made me, who hitherto preserved and blessed me, and in whose fatherly goodness I may confide, that he will never make me miserable, and that even the afflictions I may at any time suffer shall tend to my benefit." This conviction is constantly reiterated in his writings. When Whitefield expressed a hope for his eternal as well as his temporal happiness, Franklin wrote back, I have myself no doubt that I shall enjoy as much of both as is proper for me. That being who gave me existence, and through almost three-score years, has been continually showering his favors upon me, whose very chastisements have been blessings to me, can I doubt that he loves me? and if he loves me can i doubt that he will go on to take care of me not only here but hereafter this to some may seem presumption but to me it appears the best grounded hope hope of the future built on experience of the past he even found in the evil of the world further reason for his faith I find in this life there are many troubles, but it appears to me also that there are many more pleasures. This is why I love to live. One must not blame Providence inconsiderately, reflect on how many of our duties even she has made to be pleasures naturally, and has had the further kindness to give the name of sin to several, so that we may enjoy them with more relish." Franklin expressed this same opinion with some bitterness in a letter which touched upon the Revolutionary War and the power by which a single man, George the Third, in England, who happened to love blood and to hate Americans, should have been permitted to destroy quote, near one hundred thousand human creatures i wonder at this but i cannot therefore part with the comfortable belief of a divine providence and the more i see the impossibility from the number and extent of his crimes of giving equivalent punishment to a wicked man in this life the more i am convinced of a future state in which all that here appears to be wrong shall be set right all that is crooked made straight In this faith, let you and me, my dear friend, comfort ourselves. It is the only comfort in the present dark scene of things that is allowed us. But he was too much of a scientist to base his belief solely on such abstractions, and his chief argument has a touch of modernity that is very striking. you see i have some reason to wish that in a future state i may not only be as well as i was but a little better and i hope it for i too with your poet trust in god and when i observe that there is great frugality as well as wisdom in his works since he has been evidently sparing both of labor and materials, for by the various inventions of propagation he has provided for the continual peopling his world with plants and animals, without being at the trouble of repeated new creations, and by the natural reduction of compound substances to their original elements, capable of being employed in new compositions, he has prevented the necessity of creating new matter, so that the earth, water, air, and perhaps fire, which, being compounded from wood do when the wood is dissolved return and again become air earth fire and water i say that when i see nothing annihilated and not even a drop of water wasted i cannot suspect the annihilation of souls or believe that he will suffer the daily waste of millions of minds ready-made that now exist and put himself to the continual trouble of making new ones thus finding myself to exist in the world I believe I shall, in some shape or other, always exist, and with all the inconveniences human life is liable to, I shall not object to a new edition of mine, hoping, however, that the errata of the last may be corrected." Not quite six weeks before his death, at the request of a friend, he wrote out what he had come to believe. "'You desire to know something of my religion.' It is the first time I have been questioned upon it, but I cannot take your curiosity amiss, and shall endeavour in a few words to gratify it. Here is my creed. I believe in one God, the creator of the universe, that he governs it by his providence, that he ought to be worshipped. The most acceptable service we render to him is doing good to his other children." The soul of man is immortal and will be treated with justice in another life, respecting its conduct in this. These I take to be the fundamental points in all sound religion, and I regard them, as you do, in whatever sect I meet with them. As to Jesus of Nazareth, my opinion of whom you particularly desire, I think his system of morals and his religion, as he left them to us, the best the world ever saw or is like to see but i apprehend it has received various corrupting changes and i have with most of the present dissenters in england some doubts as to his divinity though it is a question i do not dogmatize upon having never studied it and think it needless to busy myself with it now when i expect soon an opportunity of knowing the truth with less trouble i see no harm however in its being believed if that belief has the good consequence as probably it has of making his doctrines more respected and more observed especially as i do not perceive that the supreme takes it amiss by distinguishing the unbelievers in his government of the world with any peculiar mark of displeasure I shall only add, respecting myself, that having experienced the goodness of that being in conducting me prosperously through a long life, I have no doubt of its continuance in the next, though without the smallest conceit of meriting such goodness." End quote. This was written while Franklin was suffering almost constant physical torture, which he endured, so an eye witness tells us, quote, "with that calm fortitude which characterized him through life no repining no peevish expression ever escaped him during a confinement of two years in which i believe if every moment of ease could be added together it would not amount to two whole months even when the intervals from pain were so short that his words were frequently interrupted i have known him to hold a discourse in a sublime strain of piety it is natural for us to wish that an attention to some ceremonies had accompanied that religion of the heart which I am convinced Dr. Franklin always possessed, but let us who feel the benefit of them continue to practise them without thinking lightly of that piety which could support pain without a murmur and meet death without terror." End quote. In a letter of condolence which Franklin wrote to a relative on the death of his brother, he said, quote, it is the will of god and nature that these mortal bodies be laid aside when the soul is to enter into real life this is rather an embryo state a preparation for living a man is not completely born until he be dead why then should we grieve that a new child is born among the immortals a new member added to their society we are spirits That bodies should be lent us while they can afford us pleasure, assist us in acquiring knowledge, or in doing good to our fellow creatures, is a kind and benevolent act of God. When they become unfit for these purposes, and afford us pain instead of pleasure, instead of an aid, become an encumbrance, and answer none of the intentions for which they were given, it is equally kind and benevolent that a way is provided by which we may get rid of them. Death is that way we ourselves in some cases prudently choose a partial death a mangled painful limb which cannot be restored we willingly cut off he who plucks out a tooth parts with it freely since the pain goes with it and he who quits the whole body parts at once with all pains and possibilities of pains and disease which it was liable to or capable of making him suffer Our friend and we were invited abroad on a party of pleasure, which is to last forever. His chair was ready first, and he is gone before us. We could not all conveniently start together, and why should you and I be grieved at this, since we are soon to follow and know where to find him? Adieu. End of chapter 4 On Religion